From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We did not see widespread immigration enforcement over the weekend, but if the Trump administration indeed moves forward, it wouldn't be the first to conduct such sweeps. We'll put this moment into some historical context. Then you can be homesick, or if you're one of just a dozen people in history, you can be moonsick. Oh, I think yes, so yeah. <laughs> Everybody that I know, anyway, that's been there would like to be back. Fifty years after Apollo 11, we speak with one of the last men on the moon. Later, it's not a place you'd expect Pacific Islanders to settle. Well, when you think about it, Hawaiians were all about the land, the Aina. And this Grand Junction, we're rural, we're ag. So what's agriculture? The land, right? How Grand Junction became a haven for native Hawaiians. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A widespread ICE enforcement to remove people in the country illegally did not happen this weekend. Nine U.S. cities, including Denver, anticipated that Immigration and Customs Enforcement would conduct sweeps targeting people who have removal orders. The New York Times reported that there were a handful of arrests in other cities. A state lawmaker who represents Denver speculated that ICE might take action today. If they move forward, the Trump administration would not be the first to conduct such sweeps. We're going to get the long view now from Ming-Su Chen, who directs the Immigration Law and Policy Program at CU Boulder, the law school there. Hi, Ming. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, nice to have you. Uh, What have ICE's enforcement actions looked like under past presidents? Well, one of the things that is important to emphasize is that the Trump administration is not the first to use raids to enforce the immigration laws. Um, Raids go back several administrations, um, beginning with George W. Bush and the 2008 Postville raid, uh, which was mostly a worksite raid against workers um, in agricultural facilities. Um, And President Obama, of course, inherited and expanded um, the deportation regime as well, um, most famously in 2015, beginning a series of raids that were quite unpopular um, against recent arrivals um, across the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, So Trump is not the first to use this tactic. Um, However, I would say that the tactics that are being used right now are more concerning. Um, I do think they're more expansive, more irresponsible, and potentially um, have unlawful aspects to them. I'll ask you about those claims in just a moment. But Uh, As a tool, why is a raid important? Why is a sort of high-profile nationwide action um, effective? Uh, How can it be effective? Well, that really goes to the motive of the raids, right? I mean, as you mentioned, um, the raids that were announced for June and July have largely not materialized. Um, So from that standpoint, they've not been very effective. Um, But my understanding of the motivation um, is that it's largely to instill fear in communities. And along that grounds, um, they've been highly effective. Um, I think these raids and the kind of messaging that has occurred, um, sort of the unusual tactic of announcing raids nationally in advance of the actual operations, um, I think that kind of tactic is very much about sending a message. Um, And I think it's about sending a message to the immigrants themselves, um, but it is also about sending a message to sanctuary cities um, and to the conservative base um, that has really been pumped up by President Trump's um, 
promises to commit, you know, these kinds of broad actions. You know, millions of immigrants, he said, um, would be removed in mass deportations during his campaign and his early months um, in the um, in the presidency. So from that standpoint, I think that's where you've seen the greatest effect is the messaging and the fear that's created. Over the weekend, the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services told CNN that the folks ICE uh, is targeting, quote, have a federal court order. They've gotten due process and there are over a million people with removal orders. Uh, that is the pool ICE is drawing from. Uh, contrast that pool with previous pools from previous raids for me? Well, I think it's first important to note that um, DHS has been fairly inconsistent. There have been a lot of mixed messages about what the real target is for these raids. Um, I've certainly seen um, Cuccinelli's arguments um, about the removal order focus. Um, it is a little odd, by the way, that the USCIS acting director is the one commenting on that, given that this is an ICE operation. Um, but I will say that, you know, I recognize that the removal orders um, do create a more targeted subpopulation um, than might be the case in other um, other raids. Um, on the other hand, there's a way in which these raids are much broader in terms of the target criteria. Um, and that's to say that people get removal orders for a lot of reasons. Some of them might include criminal convictions um, that have been worked all the way through the immigration court process, where perhaps a greater claim to due process could be announced. Um, but other people remove remo- re- removal orders in absentia. You know, they might never receive the notice to appear in court. Um, and the moment the hearing starts, if they're not in the courtroom, they can be order removed. Um, and that can include families, that can include unaccompanied children who have no criminal conviction on their record. Um, so there are ways in which a removal order does narrow the population, but there are other ways um, that this is really a broader target than we've seen in the past. Okay, so you're encouraging people to think in a nuanced way about the term removal orders. You talked about uh, raids under the Obama administration. I think you said that they tended to target recent arrivals. Would you expand a bit on how the Obama administration approached this? Sure. So the Obama administration in 2014 laid out a series of guidance memos that talked in a straightforward way about what their priorities would be for removal. Um, And the three that were listed were national security threats, those with criminal convictions. Um, That was sort of the famous felons, not families line that President Obama used um, in both announcing um, what he hoped would be a DAPA program, Deferred Action for Parental Accountability, um, but also this new focus on recent arrivals. Um, So the last of those is the one you're referring to. Um, And that was in some ways in response to this similar phenomenon of increased migration from Central America into the United States. Um, And I would say of the three, that was probably the most controversial. And so not surprisingly, it continues to be very controversial now. Um, But even there, I think more of the operations were focused at the border rather than in the interior of the United States. Um, And again, they were more targeted in nature. Um, I think the administration made an effort to not remove people whose only crime was crossing the border um, and to not engage in the kinds of collateral enforcement um, that we've also heard from this administration uh, might be included in the raids that they're planning this time. You talk about the fear that you believe the Trump administration is instilling. Uh, If the result of that, though, is self-deportation, isn't that an efficient and effective way to get people who are not legally in the country out of the country? 
Well, I think the, there are people who have studied this, um, and I think the numbers are not entirely clear that it works. Um, I mean, first, I think it's important to separate the goal of deterrence from self-deportation, right? The goal of deterrence would be to send a message so that people who are not yet in the country decide not to come. And then the goal of self-deportation would be to remove individuals, to have individuals remove themselves um, from the interior of the country, including in some cases those who have lived here for decades. You know, and I think, you know, at both levels, it largely, the claim rests on largely untested assumptions Mm. that people come for reasons that can be easily reversed. You know, so for example, if the reason that You know, Ming, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to wrap things up there, but I appreciate your reflecting on what the research does or does not say. It sounds like there's a dearth in this arena. I, I appreciate your time. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Ming Su Chen directs the Immigration Law and Policy Program at Colorado Law. One of the largest gatherings of conservatives wrapped up in Denver over the weekend, but there was a twist. For the first time in the history of the Western Conservative Summit, a Democratic official spoke. Governor Jared Polis joked that a communications error may have contributed. When the invitation first came in, uh, my staff uh, thought it was from the Western Conservation Summit. And they said, you know, Gov, this will be a great chance to talk about your renewable energy plans and, and everything you're doing with solar and wind. And then they looked at it a little more closely and discovered it was going to be a different event. Undaunted, Polis pressed on, pointing out that 96% of the bills he signed from the last legislative session had bipartisan sponsorship, an indication, he said, of how more things unite Coloradans than divide them. Polis concluded by saying his presence wouldn't be possible without religious freedom. It was one of the themes of the conservative summit. Then he talked about his own faith. My faith, the Jewish faith, is founded, is grounded in a concept called tikkun olam. It means repairing the world. It's really been a guiding principle in my life, in many ways what has driven me to public service. It's by no means a concept unique to the Jewish faith. Uh, religions, including Christianity, are also grounded in doing good deeds and good works. And the Bible teaches us to love the stranger as we love ourselves. In Matthew 25, 36, Jesus says that those who express Their faith through good deeds will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. These are the kinds of lessons that we take from our faith traditions. And we know that our state and our country is one that celebrates people of all faiths as well as people of no faith. And we're all part of our great fabric and diversity that makes our country great. And in many ways, those words from Matthew are the words that should guide our work as public servants, feeding the hungry, carrying the sick, clothing the naked. These are teachings that show us how to have and live a righteous life. I hope that we are all courageous enough to take that path together where we can and respect one another where we have our differences. Later in the summit on Saturday night, U.S. Congressman Ken Buck, a Republican from Weld County, highlighted some of the differences he sees between Democrats and Republicans. During a roundtable, he was apparently asked about the popularity of a fellow member of Congress, Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. 
She's doing a wonderful job of letting the cat out of the bag. For years, for years, they made us believe that they were just moderates and we should vote for them. Now we've got Omar, Tlaib, AOC. There's a whole group of them that are so far to the left and they're actually what the Democrat Party stands for. Listen to what the presidential candidates are talking about. Do away with, with this constitutional provision. Do away with that constitutional provision. Let's, let's, uh, you know, let's fundamentally change America. They make Obama look like a, a, a Jack Kennedy. Some of the members Buck mentioned there were later the subject of a tweet from the president who said of them essentially they should go back to where they came from. Three of the four the president was referencing were born in the United States. Back to Congressman Buck at the Western Conservative Summit. He touched on special counsel Robert Mueller, author of a report on Russian interference in the 2016 election. Mueller is scheduled to testify before Congress in just over a week. Buck, who was recently elected chairman of the Colorado Republican Party, had some strong words for members of Congress who think Mueller's testimony in his report might lead to the impeachment of President Trump. Everybody goes back to their districts. They have a month in their districts and they want something to talk about and they're going to be, do their best to talk about impeachment. I have to tell you, uh, they are, they are, I have to use a clean term here, they're crazy. Yes. They are bat poop crazy if they think that uh, what came out of the Mueller report is impeachable because it's not. Voices from the Western Conservative Summit, which wrapped up over the weekend. When we come back, a fascinating slice of life that we discovered on our recent trip to Grand Junction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The story now of a tight-knit community you might not expect in Grand Junction. At the heart of this particular community is a modest restaurant, an order-at-the-counter, seat-yourself place in a strip mall. This is Akahi Grill, a Hawaiian restaurant specializing in poke, bowls of fresh tuna, fruit, and vegetables. It's across the street from Colorado Mesa University, and that's not a coincidence. CMU has for decades attracted native Pacific Islanders, today around 150 students, A special arrangement means they don't have to pay out-of-state tuition. And their annual luau, yes, luau in landlocked Colorado, is a real draw. This is from the 2015 event. Its absolute charm is that you'll hear yee-haws from the audience as the dancers strike a particularly Polynesian pose. Before I explain how the Hawaiian community got so strong in Grand Junction, before we meet the transplanted Hawaiian on city council, I want to introduce you to a soft-spoken woman here at the restaurant, a native of Maui, who was just a little nervous to do an interview. Easy question. You know the answer to this one. Just tell me your first and last name and spell it for me. My first name is Dion, D-I-O-N-N-E. And my last name is Puha, P-U-H-A. You're the owner of this location. Of this location? Yes. yes. So do I call it a chain? A uh, family business. It's actually my father started the business. My sister owns the one in Gypsum. My brother owns the one in Avon, Colorado. I own this one here in Grand Junction. And my other brother owns the food trucks. Like so many native Hawaiians who come to Colorado, Puha's family was in search of economic opportunity. 
Job prospects are limited on the islands. Housing costs can be astronomical and wages don't keep up. Now you heard her say they have a restaurant in Gypsum. That's where the family landed. So my dad wanted something different for us. My uncle brought him up here to start a construction company. Then the Great Recession hit. Construction kind of faded away, you know, it kind of went down. So we started cooking, catering and everything. Like he started catering for my brothers, their football teams and things like that. And then we just kind of went from there. And he asked me one day if we wanted to open a restaurant. Tell me about the food you cook here. Well, the food we cook here is, I want to say it's like home. You know, we brought home with us. So it's like family recipes and like things we love. And we wanted to share it with everyone. Her customers today include two Hawaiian natives. Best dish on the menu here. I'm a fish guy. If I miss the ocean, I miss the ocean because of the fish. So I'm always a pokey guy. That's Grand Junction City Councilman Phil Pea, who came here 43 years ago to play college football and never left. I like the Maui chicken. And Bo Flores, a senior at Colorado Mesa. He's student body president. My hopes is to eventually run for city council, kind of like what (laughs) Uncle Phil did. (laughs) I like how you refer to him as Uncle Phil. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a little, for me, disrespectful to just call him Phil. I think that's the way that we were brought up, yeah. When you're brought up, yeah, there's respect. You know, friends of the family that are very close, your uncle and auntie. You know, you don't call them by their first name. Pea, a.k.a. Uncle Phil, was something of a pioneer, an early Hawaiian student at CMU. Hundreds of others followed. Word spread, Hawaiian tells Hawaiian tells Hawaiian? Is that how this happens? Uh, coconut, coconut wireless. Coconut wireless, that's what we call <laughs> it. Coconut wireless. Yeah. I feel like you can say that, I can't. <laughs> no, don't I worry. Know. Pea sees himself as a role model, someone Hawaiian kids can lean on when they get homesick. Someone who speaks their language, literally. It's definitely more... <laughs> Moke means local. Pigeon talk, yeah. Pigeon talk. That is Hawaiian pigeon, an English-based creole. Do you want us to do it real quick? Definitely. Now, Bombay. Bombay, you can chant them. You're like, you know what, we talk like that. <laughs> can? We can? You ready to go, bro? And it's very fast. I like to think of it as it's shortened sentences. Okay, so can I give you a sentence and then hear what that might be in pigeon? Okay. You can try, yeah. I walked to the Hawaiian restaurant, ordered poke, had a good meal, and went back to my dorm. Probably like go grind ikahi and then come back. Yeah. Cruise. Can. Can. <laughs> and it's funny because when I first got here, people like, they don't understand what we're saying. And my friends would do it on purpose. They're still like, if we like talk smack or something. But <laughs> so then no one knows what we're saying. Besides the lack of an ocean and the distance from their families, what led to the most culture shock for Pea and Flores, and this would be true for anyone from a warmer climate, was the snow experiencing it for the first time, though decades apart. The building over there is called Houston Hall. This is at Colorado Mesa University? Yes, and we were upstairs, second floor in Houston Hall, and it started to snow. And I started to stare out the window, and then finally I looked down and I seen one of my friends, Kevin, run out there. So we didn't have winter shoes, so what we did is you'd put socks, and then you'd have to put your finger between your big toe, (laughs) and then it'll fit in your slippers. Wait, wait, you were wearing sandals? But you put socks on, so they're winter. They're like a winter. <laughs> so it was warm. It was warm. <laughs> Until today, I've got friends that still live here, and they always bring it up to me. Going, you know, Phil, I'll never forget watching you three guys just roll around in the snow and play out there for hours. I love the idea of flip-flops with tube socks as winter attire. They're like Hawaiian Uggs. Yeah. <laughs> 
So for me, it was kind of similar. I was in Pinion, which is the, a dorm, and it started to snow, and a bunch, I think there was like seven of us. Four of us was from, was from Kauai, and the other three was from Oahu, and we're just like, it's snowing, we're screwed. I never touched snow. I never, my island doesn't have snow at all, <laughs> or on my island. So we, we ran outside, we took off all our clothes, and we were just rolling around, <laughs> screaming, yelling, chee just just going crazy. What is chi? Like, chee-hoo, it's like a little cheer it's, that we it's do. It's a cheer of the lines, too. And um, there, it was funny because we were all in our underwear, just running around, rolling around. I actually got sick after that, but... Gee, I can't imagine <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah. <laughs> what most surprised me from our conversation is hearing the parallels these men draw between Colorado's western slope and Hawaii, the similarities they see. Opportunity drew them both here, but the culture, which Pea calls Polynesian cowboy, is what keeps them in Colorado. The culture's kind of Hawaiian. It's kind culture. They're personal. They'll talk to you. You know, you walk in the store, say hi. They'll say hi. They'll just walk by you, bump into you. I love this idea that the culture in Mesa County is Hawaiian-like. Well, when you think about it, Hawaiians were all about the land, the aina. And this Grand Junction, we're rural. We're ag. So what's agriculture? The land, right? I agree. When I, when I first came to Grand Junction, it was, I noticed it because we, we went to Denver first. The, the big city kind of, we always complained that we opened the door for someone and they wouldn't say thank you or they wouldn't open it for someone behind. And that's, to me, it's the simple things like that is, can make someone's day. So when we got here, I totally agree with Uncle Phil, the, the fact that it's just, hey, Hi, small conversation. I never even met this guy or, or, or with an elderly couple. We just talked and it's just, it's comforting. Yeah, I'm from the big island of Hawaii. Right smack in the middle, there's this ranching community. And people laugh because I always told them when I got her, I'd see more horses and cows in Hawaii. And they, <laughs> and they would joke and say, what, you guys wear hula skirts, you know? And then they come back. And then they see what it's really like. As far as your eyes can see, it was the biggest ranch in the world owned by one person, which was Samuel Parker. Cattle trucks, big semis. As far as your eyes could see, it was just rolling hills of ranches. You've gone from one ranch land to another. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. This one's a little more <laughs> arid, but yeah. This one's a little more arid. Yeah. Just a little. Just a little. Phil Pea and Bo Flores are natives of Hawaii who came to Grand Junction to attend Colorado Mesa University. They stayed and made it their home. And they joined us at Akahi Grill, a Hawaiian restaurant that opened across from campus last year to serve the many Polynesian students who attend there. Back with Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. The first manned mission to the moon took place 50 years ago this week, Apollo 11. Our next guest helped guide that mission from Earth as a geologist, then wound up on the moon himself. In fact, he was on the last lunar mission. Harrison Schmidt went on to represent New Mexico in the U.S. Senate. Schmidt was in Denver over the weekend for Apollo Palooza at the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. Senator, you once described walking on the moon as being on an infinite, giant trampoline. Well, all 12 of us who have been there basically had the same experience. Our weight was divided by six. My own uh, weight with a spacesuit and a backpack and everything was about 370 pounds, Earth pounds. And that meant that on the moon, it was about 61 pounds. So you can understand how uh, it might have felt like a giant trampoline. Do you miss that feeling once you've had it? Oh, I think yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
everybody that I know, anyway, that's been there would like to be back. It is an exclusive club, no doubt. When you are one of the few people to have walked on the moon, do you spend the rest of your life bragging about it? Oh, I don't think we brag about it. We talk about it all the time because people are interested. They've been interested for 50 years, and they almost certainly will be interested for another 50 years at least. But by that time, we'll have people living on the moon, I think, and uh, having the same experience that we had, or probably an even better experience, as they prepare to go to Mars. Ah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because President Trump has announced a program to get Americans back to the moon by 2024, and the thinking is indeed that it might be a very good way to practice for the much longer journey to Mars. Is that a plan that you embrace? Well, it's not only a very good way, it's critical. Uh, The moon is really in the critical path to get to Mars. Mars is going to be very difficult. It's going to require space-based resources uh, in order to reduce the launch mass from Earth by a lot, and therefore the cost. And uh, the moon has the resources that one would need, uh, what we call consumable resources, water, oxygen, and for fuel, hydrogen, and potentially even rocket fuel for uh, shortening that trip to Mars. When you say space-based resources, I'll do a little bit of a translation there. The idea is you can't Uh, blast off from Earth with all the fuel that you'd need to get to Mars. So you've got to be able to produce that sort of on your way there or create gas stations. And uh, that's what you think could happen here. Let's go back 50 years. You were in the astronaut corps when Apollo 11 landed. Where were you? And uh, would you paint us a picture of the moment the lunar module set down? Give us a sense of what was going through your mind and your heart. Well, I was very deeply involved in the Apollo 11 mission. I was the designated mission scientist. I was helping to train the crew for their uh, lunar activities. And so I was in mission control when Neil took that first step. It was clear that 400,000 Americans had met the challenge that John Kennedy laid out for them. And I think all that 400,000-plus Americans, young Americans, most of them younger than 30, felt that they had done something really remarkable. That number, 400,000, help us understand what that number is. Well, about 50,000 of them were in NASA, government employees, but all the rest were contractor employees. Boeing, General Motors, Chrysler. Yeah, I'm fascinated that that you you look at the 400,000 people who helped get us to the moon. I think that's such great well, pers- they, they, perspective. Hey, they not only helped, they made it happen. They made it happen. They were the true heroes of the space program. The astronauts were merely the tip of the spear. So you mentioned your science background, a geologist. It was your job in part to prepare those first uh, moonwalkers for collection of what was on the moon, uh, the dust and the rocks and Gosh, I have to think with as much money and energy as spent on a single mission, the desire might be to bring back everything you can. How did you help the crew understand what to bring back? Well, the primary constraint was time. Dick Gordon told me when we were backup crew for Apollo 15, time is always going to be relentless when you're in space, and it surely is. But Neil uh, was a great observer, very, very bright young man at the time. He was able to uh, collect a, a really a fantastic suite of rocks. And then at the last, sort of at the last minute, while he was outside the spacecraft, he filled that proverbial rock box full of lunar dirt, of lunar soil. And that sample of soil is really one of the most important ever brought back 
from the moon, included within the 850 pounds that the rest of the missions brought back, because that sample of lunar soil tells us what the resources are uh, that we can use and settlers of the moon can use in the future. Uh, Forgive me if this is a naive question, but did Neil Armstrong have a shovel or what? He basically uh, picked up the rocks by hand. Uh, That was not difficult. He had a spring-loaded attachment that he could use to do that without having to get down on his hands and knees. And then he did have a scoop in order to get the soil into the rock box. How confident were you during the Apollo 11 mission that you too would be on the moon? At that time, I had not been assigned to be on a backup crew. I was soon after that, early in 1970, I was assigned to the backup crew of Apollo 15. Once you're in a backup crew position, then you're pretty much, unless you do something that you shouldn't do, you are pretty much in line to fly a mission. Now, the mission I, uh, Dick Gordon, Vance Brand, and I were in line to fly was Apollo 18. Yeah. And in the middle of the Apollo 15 training, it, we were, it was announced publicly that the Apollo 18 mission was canceled. And so then it became our job to try to be so good that we could be assigned to Apollo 17. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was the only one that ended up being assigned to Apollo 17, primarily because NASA headquarters and the National Academy of Sciences felt we ought to have a scientist, and specifically a geologist, on that last mission to the moon. My goodness, so you were something of an overachiever, Senator, and otherwise you would not have gone to the moon because 18 was canceled, 17 was the last time. You you were one of the last people on the moon. I was the last to step on the moon. If Neil Armstrong was number one, I was number 12. How often do you dream about that? Does it come back to you when you're asleep? It doesn't. I don't. I can't recall ever dreaming about being in space or being on the moon, but it's probably because I talk about it so much. Here I'm talking <laughs> to you, and, I, and uh, that probably takes care of any need to dream about it. What's a question you aren't asked enough? Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, perspective for a questioner. I think uh, the main thing that people should ask more about is why it's so important for the human species, if you will, to be spacefaring. I think it goes back to our heritage, evolutionary heritage, because it's always been important for uh, human beings to expand their access to resources, to expand their access to living uh, conditions, to improve those living conditions. And for two million years, we've been doing that. And so uh, the people who did it well were the ones that survived. And uh, so evolution, I think, had a major part in this interest that the species has to go into space. Okay. Do the math here with me. Do you remember how old John Glenn was when he went, also a senator, by the way, uh, when he went back into space? Well, if I remember correctly, he was about 70. 70. Okay. And uh, if you don't mind my asking, Senator, how old are you? I uh, just turned 84. My goodness. Okay. Would you go back if you could? Or is... That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go back if you could, or is that just, uh, is that not possible physiologically? I think it's probably uh, uh, would just be a dream. Uh, there are so many really brilliant young people in the astronaut corps today and, and who will be in the astronaut corps in the future 
that uh, we won't have any problem finding highly qualified folks to go on uh, not only back to the moon and explore there and prepare to go to Mars, but actually to go to Mars. I would hate to be competing with these young people today to try to get a seat on a flight to the moon. Senator, thanks for your time. Thank you. Senator Harrison Schmidt was on the last moon mission. The first one took place 50 years ago this week. Schmidt was in Denver celebrating Apollo Palooza, which continues through the end of the week at Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. Still to come, a downside to all the wet weather we've had, deadly conditions for whitewater rafters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Life can be pretty complicated for people who have marijuana-related offenses on their criminal record from before legalization. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize. On the latest episode of On Something, what happens to the people who may be wondering why they're still on the wrong side of the law, even though the law has changed? Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. About a dozen people have died on Colorado's waterways so far this rafting season, and three are missing. But as more people seek the whitewater thrill, the rafting industry is becoming less regulated. CPR's Haley Sanchez has been looking into this, and she spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. Hi, Haley. Hi, Avery. What did you learn in your reporting? Well, the state usually sees eight deaths on average from these kinds of accidents. So this year's number is nearly double, and the season isn't over yet. Four of those have been on commercial rafting trips. For context, there are hundreds of thousands of people who go on a commercial rafting trip every year. But as those fatalities keep rising, the state is spending less money to regulate the industry, which has resulted in fewer inspections for private and commercial trips. It went from 506 inspections in 2013 to 175 in 2017. Inspectors have also been giving fewer warnings and fines. And who's regulating the rafting and boating? Colorado Parks and Wildlife is. They have seasonal rangers who work with a boating safety coordinator. These rangers are monitoring outfitters' licenses and guide qualifications. They also check the boats and equipment and investigate boating accidents. I talked to Jason Himmick of Boulder. He was a guide for four years and spent time on the Roaring Fork and Arkansas Rivers. He said he ran into inspectors twice, once as a guide and another time as a private boater. And as a guide, they were just making sure you had the minimum amount of safety equipment. Of course, the basics is, you know, every every guest has a PFD, that you actually have spares, that you might have spare paddles, that you have a medical kit included on your trip. Uh, and maybe there were a few others. Uh, and so they were making sure that the outfitters were, were doing their part with the minimum standards. He said PFDs there, that means a personal flotation device or a life jacket. What do lawmakers have to say about this? I talked with State Rep. Julie McCluskey. She sponsored a bill in May that renewed the regulatory program until 2028. Here's what she said. Whitewater rafting is an important outdoor event recreation opportunity for many tourists as well as locals. It was important to me that we continue to have a licensing program in place that would make sure our commercial river outfitters were properly licensed and that they were providing the safest experience that they could. She says the drop in inspections could be due in part to a period where the agency wasn't able to fill a position. And because in recent drought years, the rafting companies do less business, which affects how long inspectors are on duty. 
But that position she mentioned was just vacant during one fiscal year, and the inspections did decline steadily since 2013. What are other experts saying? They acknowledge inspections are important, but they all largely agree that the burden for safety should fall on rafting participants. They want rafters to be cautious and pay attention to safety regulations. Bruce Snelling is with Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office, and he deals a lot with rafting accidents, including one fatality at the beginning of the month. He said people are usually not willing to back out of a trip. Tourists may travel long distances to get to Colorado, and they have this fun and exciting trip planned, and they're just signing up for something without a second thought. They sign the waivers without a uh, complete understanding of uh, how dangerous it can actually be. The commercial outfitters are a lot of times relying on people who sign up to get in the raft. You know, the questions are asked are, do you have a heart condition? Are you capable of swimming? I wonder how much of the responsibility falls on commercial outfitters. They're responsible, too. They're required to have liability insurance and have participants sign waivers. And it's important to note that the investigations are ongoing. So far, no commercial outfitter has been found liable for any of the deaths this season. And in talking to Snelling and Himmick and the Colorado River Outfitters Association, they say commercial outfitters are doing the best they can. Commercial outfitters say they want guests to be upfront about their experience level and health. They tell guests not to sign up for a trip that's out of reach. And when waters are high and more dangerous, they'll move a trip downriver to accommodate their guests. Thanks, Haley. Thank you. My colleague Avery Lill speaking with CPR's Haley Sanchez, who looked into how the rafting industry in Colorado is becoming less regulated. The water that drains from your shower, sink, and washing machine accounts for more than half of indoor water use. Thing is, it could be reused as what's called gray water, the state says it'd be a good way to conserve, especially in the face of growth and climate change, which prompted a question to Colorado Wonders. Well, we did some checking. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis found almost no one is using gray water, at least not legally. Not a lot of people think about gray water, but Barbara Varnhagen of Greenwood Village does. She wrote to Colorado Wonders with this question. Whatever happened to the gray water plan for the Denver metro area? I was so excited because I'm obsessed with water. And then I never heard anything about it again. Gray water reuse was legalized in Colorado in 2013 in hopes it would help save water, which is badly needed. Officials say that by 2050, if nothing changes, the state will have at least a million more people than our water can supply. And climate change makes the future of Colorado water even more uncertain. The state water plan tries to close this gap between supply and demand, and it recognizes gray water as one tool to help make that happen. But the reason Varnhagen hasn't heard anything about gray water lately is because very little has happened in the six years since it was legalized. To see a gray water system in action, Varnhagen and I meet in Longmont at the home of Avery Ellis. Hey, Avery. So nice to meet you. Nice I'm to meet Barbara. you. Hi, Barbara. Thank Welcome you so guys. much for opening your home to us. I, you can't imagine how excited I am. Ellis installs gray water systems and teaches classes on permaculture and ecological landscape design. He shows us around his yard. There are rain barrels and a greenhouse Ellis built. 
The young trees and shrubs are watered through one of Ellis's gray water systems. Inside, he shows us how it works. Welcome to my washing machine. In Colorado, there are two gray water systems that are legal. This first one is called Laundry to Landscape. On Ellis's washing machine, the hose that pumps out wastewater has been connected to a valve. One direction goes to the sewer. If I'm doing a load with bleach or if my baby's got dirty diapers, I have total control to flip this valve right here. But today it's beautiful out, it's 70 degrees, I got normal wear and tear on my clothes. So I flip this valve and out that water goes through my crawl space out to my landscape direct. The water is pumped into an irrigation system that by law is buried four inches underground to keep it from pooling or spraying into the air. Ellis says a system like this costs a few hundred dollars to install yourself or around $1,500 if you work with a professional. This system, and it sounds like it's really simple and relatively cheap, actually, to do this. Yeah, this system is simple and affordable, and I really advocated for this as the law was getting adopted. The second system is a bit more complicated and costly. Wastewater from a shower or sink is collected in a storage tank and is used for the landscape or to flush toilets. There's internal plumbing, and the water needs to be filtered and treated and can't be stored for more than 48 hours. As Ellis mentioned, he was closely involved when the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment set the rules for using gray water systems. The first thing that has to happen, cities and counties have to adopt the code, called Regulation 86, before residents or businesses can set up a system. So far, only three have. Denver, Picking County, and Castle Rock. Ellis isn't happy with that. It takes a little civil disobedience and a little public support to push these laws into local adoption. For Ellis, his civil disobedience is living in Longmont with a gray water system where it isn't allowed, and he teaches and helps others how to install laundry to landscape without permits. Because so far, even in the places where it's been adopted, no one has applied for a gray water permit. Not a single one. And Regulation 86 requires them. Kurt Dahl is the environmental health manager with Pitkin County, which included gray water in its zoning in 2018. We've had a few interested parties, but I think due to the complication of the regulation, they didn't see the benefit. Dahl says he'd like to see changes to the law since no one is really using it, like possibly expanding the types of systems that are legal. The reg was more conservative than I think a lot of people originally anticipated. Dahl acknowledges regulators need to protect the public from potential health risks, but he'd like the state to reassess whether all the requirements are truly necessary. If we are able to loosen the regulation and still protect for public health, we'll probably drive some costs down that may help make it practical for folks to put systems in. Castle Rock is the newest to adopt gray water rules, but only in new construction. Retrofitting an old home or building isn't allowed. Mark Marlowe is the director of Castle Rock Water. He says it comes down to expense. What it would mean is a lot of staff time to review what that individual homeowner wants to do. It would require a lot of inspection to verify that it's done right, because if it's done wrong, you could create a problem. That's why some cities and counties are choosing not to take on gray water at all. Douglas County, for one, said it would be too complicated and costly for the county to oversee gray water installations. They also cite the potential for public health risks. Sybil Charvel is an associate engineering professor at Colorado State University. She has been involved in gray water research for nearly 20 years and also advised the state in writing the rules. She says she's disappointed to see all the growth and construction over the past 10 years that's failed to include planning for gray water. We knew there was all this upcoming new development, and we saw that as just a huge opportunity. And unfortunately, that opportunity has really not been realized. Charvel's research looks at what levels of treatment are necessary to make gray water safe. 
In Colorado's code, a system has to be certified by the National Sanitation Foundation. Charvelle tried to fight it. She says the NSF's requirements are very strict. We don't necessarily need to, you know, remove the constituents of shampoo to make sure water is safe to flush a toilet. And the NSF rules create another big limit for expansion. Charvel points out that there's no current NSF-approved gray water system that works for anything larger than a single-family home. So even if a developer wanted to put a gray water system into its next thousand-unit complex, they couldn't. The technology exists, but it hasn't been approved by the NSF. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment says human health was the number one priority while creating Regulation 86, and they wanted to minimize risk as much as possible. But states like Arizona and California have eased their regulations and now let people install laundry-to-landscape systems without a permit, as long as they follow best practices. That's one thing Avery Ellis, the ecological landscaper, would like to see happen in Colorado. I certainly feel hopeful because... I have a forum that people come to me and say, I want this. And so I regularly get inquiries about how do I do this in my home? And people all around Colorado who want to see this adopted. And Barbara Varnhagen, who asked this Colorado Wonders question, she says she'll be looking into how to reuse gray water in her own home. If I could have my green grass cake and eat it too, then it would be awesome to use that water, have green grass, and not feel like I've taken away from our water supply. While the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment defends the current regulation, it is looking at possible ways to expand the use of gray water. It plans to hold community meetings sometime soon. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. What about Colorado makes you wonder? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Each summer, hail pummels the front range, hitting cars, roofs, and windows. Repair costs are adding up. State Farm ranks Colorado the most expensive hail state in the country, and conditions could grow worse with climate change. Here's CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood. After nearly four decades running his own insurance agency in Grand Junction, Kyle Dufford thought he'd seen the worst that nature could do. Wildfire was the main risk. So when he moved to northern Colorado in 2015, hail was new. I walked outside to see what this was like. On the western slope, white stuff falling out of the sky was a good thing. Dufford didn't get much hail. And it was hurting me as it fell. And my wife yelled at me, get out of there. That's hail. It's going to hurt you. The next day at work, Dufford's colleagues filled him in on what it's like to work in Hale Alley along the Front Range. Hale is driving up insurance costs. Roof and car repairs can take more than a year to fix. After that experience, I came back to the office and said, wow, that was a real hailstorm. And they said, you haven't seen anything yet. Two years ago, baseball-sized stones rained down on Denver, causing $2.3 billion in damage. Then last year, a June hailstorm dumped golf-ball-sized stones across the North Metro area. It racked up half a billion dollars in damage. The reason those storms are so expensive isn't because the hail is bigger or more frequent. It's because there are more people for it to affect, more cars to damage, and more houses. Colorado is being pushed, unfortunately, into that number one spot. Carol Walker is with the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. Where we're either ranked second or first for hail insurance claims. The end result is that it costs companies more to insure homes and businesses, and they're pushing costs onto customers. There are situations where your insurance company may decide not to renew 
whether that's an HOA or an individual property. Many have switched to require separate deductibles just for hail, distinct from the one that covers theft and fire. Some homeowners, like Greeley resident Stephen Roach, are starting to think differently about how to recover from hail. After a July 2018 storm damaged his roof, he replaced it with rubber shingles that he hopes will last longer. So we're basically upgrading to something that may actually not get damaged the next time. Roach is lucky. He paid a flat rate $1,000 deductible. His insurance company covered the rest. But the other issue, he says, is that as deductibles rise, homeowners may not be able to afford repairs. The problem that I foresee is that there's a lot of people that aren't going to be able to cover any of those kind of deductibles. The problem could get worse. Andreas Prine is a scientist with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He says the industry is getting a grip on how bad hailstorms have been in the past and what the future might hold. You have way higher losses anyway already, so climate change will either increase those trends or it might also decrease those trends dependent on the region where you are. Research is still emerging on climate change and hail. But one paper shows hail risk in southern states like Texas, another hotspot, going down because hotter air is projected to melt hailstones before they hit the ground. Hail in higher elevations like Colorado and Wyoming could get worse. So Colorado, Wyoming, and also Canada might see increases in the size of hailstones that can occur. That could mean a lot more pummeling storms and an even more costly situation for Colorado homeowners. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.